This is the Annex Wealth Management SWAT Podcast, Episode 50, a special episode today for Monday, May 8th. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, insight, and perspective from members of the Annex Wealth Management Investment Committee. In the studio, Trevor Nargis, Senior Trader. Welcome. Hey, Danny. Blaine Disrude, Research Analyst. Welcome. Hi. Thanks, Danny. So we just want to start by giving a big shout out to all of our listeners, right? It's episode 50. It's a big milestone for us. We appreciate everyone who comes back week after week to tune in. If you like what you hear, you know, be sure to share that with a friend, colleague, or family member. We really do enjoy making these and your listening and spreading the word really means a lot. As we said, it's a special episode. We've been kind of teasing this one and we're pleased to introduce Gibson Smith, who is the founder of Smith Capital Investors. They are a fixed income investment firm that sub-advises roughly $3 billion in mutual funds. And Smith Capital is based out of Denver, Colorado. Gibson has over 30 years in the business, including 15 years at Janus Capital Management, where he served as the chief investment officer of fixed income. Gibson, thanks for being on. We really appreciate you taking the time to do the SWAT podcast with us. Having your knowledge, experience, and expertise is going to be a lot of fun to go through this episode. Awesome. Well, fantastic to be with you guys this morning. We always go through our upcoming events and economic data for this week. Some of those that are really important are going to be CPI and PPI. Well, I think coming off the uh, the Federal Reserve meeting last week, and we think about the importance of inflation as it relates to the Fed's path um, in terms of interest rate policy and monetary conditions, um, I think the CPI and PPI report are going to be critically important as they really kind of will tell us whether or not the Fed's on right on the right track in terms of its raising rates to fight inflation or whether there's still more work to be done there. So I think both will get a lot of attention. And I think we're getting to this point where we've seen inflation start coming down. Now the discussion is around, okay, the Fed's done over 5% in Fed funds rate. Like their hikes have taken us up to that level. Inflation has come down, but are we at a point now where they're becoming data dependent, which they've notioned? Is inflation actually going to continue to come down or are we getting to that sticky point that we've talked about in the past? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's probably one of the most important questions as it relates to the market and probably we'll talk about it as a, as a, a future threat. But, you know, inflation is coming down. When we look at the regional surveys. They are showing kind of declines in the inflation data. When we look at the goods segment of the economy, prices are coming down after the escalations during COVID. I think the sticky part relates to wages and some of the service sector. And that's probably the area where the Fed having the largest consternation in what to do here. It keeps raising rates because it wants to fight inflation, but it doesn't see it coming down fast enough to meet its 2% objective. Yeah, so going into our threats, when we get to that point, we'll kind of dive into dissecting that and what to look for and what we're kind of watching as far as what the Fed's doing there. And so let's keep plugging away here then. You know, let's look at some of the recent data that we received. We just had the May Fed meeting and we got another 25 basis point hike. It was really interesting in this last FOMC meeting and Powell's comments while the market was preparing for a 25 basis points and let's keep in mind this is the 10th increase taking rates from, listen, zero to 25 basis points up to five and a quarter. The 10th increase to take rates from zero to up to five and a quarter. Um, The market has been expecting this, but the market's starting to question whether or not the Fed's gone too far too fast and hasn't allowed some patience 
to let the market digest these new levels on short-term interest rates. And I think the concern is that, you know, Powell is being somewhat uh, kind of oblivious to what's happening in the marketplace and the stresses we're starting to see and some of the issues related to the higher rates. And he is diligently fighting inflation, which we applaud, but I think the market's also starting to second guess how aggressive the Fed has been. That's a great point too, because, you know, not just from the market, but you also heard it in some of the Q&A from the meeting of, there are a couple of journalists who are saying, you know, given all the stress that you're seeing in the regional banking sector, kind of the turmoil that you're seeing there, do you guys think that maybe you've gone too far and done too much? So it'll, it'll be interesting to see how things shape up because one thing he did stress was that they're going to continue to be data dependent. So we'll see how some of that data coming in kind of shapes any future changes in policy going forward. I think one other thing we wanted to touch on too is that on Friday we got non-farm payroll data. It did come in better than expected. However, we got revisions to prior month's data. With those downward revisions, are people maybe thinking that things are a little better than they really are? Yeah, and this has been the quandary for the Fed. The Fed has made it very clear that they're seeing, you know, the economy slowing in certain segments of the economy, but the area that they have not seen a retrenchment has been on the on the on the job side. I mean, we had a forecast of 185,000 jobs and the number came in at 253 and there was broad-based strength across all subsectors um, in employment and I think the area of this report that is most important is when you look at the strength in the wage component or what we call the average hourly earnings it was up uh, 0.5 percent and on a year-over-year basis it's up 4.4 percent so while Powell has said um, he doesn't see the direct relationship between wages and inflation we all know that higher wages facilitates the ability to buy or to consume at a higher rate. And so I think the non-farm payroll report, while there were some revisions down, the concern is on the wage front that continues to be very, very strong. Let's get into our SWAT. That for me is a strength at this point, like ripping up the script a little bit, but had it as just like our economic update and the data. And we've talked about the job market being the focus. We've seen cracks there with the warrant notices in states, but it continues to show strength and companies are still hiring. Now, how fast that turns and how fast that can turn on a dime is something that we're going to have to watch and see as far as how far the Fed takes us on their tightening path. And if that really comes through in the unemployment, as for now, I mean, that jobs data is just, it's strong. Gibson will kind of go into what we actually had here for strengths. In fixed income specifically, credit has done well. Fixed income in general year to date has done quite well. You know, we think about the strength, it's really uh, one of interest rates and returns. The real story of returns in the fixed income market this year has been the decline in interest rates. You know, if we look across the yield curve, which is defined as different maturities um, on the in the treasury market, you know, the two-year treasury is about 68 basis points lower year to date and about 100 basis points lower than the October highs that we saw last year. 10-year treasury is down about 54 basis points year to date and the 30-year bond is about 24 basis points points lower. So those lower interest rates have really driven a lot of the returns in the fixed income market year to date. This is coming off of what we all know was a was a very very bad year in 2022 for fixed income, but you know the results kind of speak for themselves. The US Treasury index is up over 4% year to date and the long treasury index is up over 6%. So lower interest rates have really driven a lot of the returns year to date. But that doesn't tell the whole story, you know, when we think about yields declining that means that that bond prices go up and that leads to better total returns for fixed income investors. You know, treasuries are doing well and that's driving corporate bonds and mortgage bonds to do better also. But again, the real story is, is in high yield. High yield, which has about an 8.5% coupon, is also up about 4% 
aligned with investment grade credit being up four and then mortgages being up about three and a half percent. So, you know, we're in an environment where declining yields have really supported the positive returns we've seen year to date. And I think if we are concerned about a recession moving forward or concerned about growth slowing and then ultimately inflation coming down, we could see these numbers get even better as the year progresses. Do you attribute, let's say, the high yield credit market doing as well as it has, somewhat attributable to banking not necessarily being a large sector in the high yield space, one, and then two, we've actually seen, in my opinion, inflows net of issuance year to date in the fixed income asset class as a whole. And from my standpoint, I see those as two attributors to why fixed income has done well and why it's specifically high yield. And just curious if you're feeling the same way or if you, you have some different thoughts on that. I agree with what you're saying. We're also in a world that is still starved for yield. Um, investors need yield and coupons in their portfolio to generate that stream of cash flows. And in an environment where the 10 year treasury yields you know, 3.45% and you can earn 8.5% on the high yield index, there is some money that's going to find its way into those higher yielding areas of the market. And I think that will continue. I think it's important though, when we talk about how we generate yield in a portfolio, we have to be careful of the risks we're taking. The high yield market obviously has much more volatility, much more drawdown risk. And so the question that investors have to ask themselves, and I think in the marketplace, what we're asking ourselves is, are we being fairly compensated for that additional yield in the high yield market, which is versus what's available in the investment grade market? So we talked about year to date, zooming out a little farther, looking over the course of, let's say, the past year and a half. And over that time frame, short duration over the course of that period has really been the strength. And now yeah. we've seen higher yields, again, looking over that broader period of time, right? Because as we were talking about earlier, rates have moved so quickly and they've moved so much higher. So now we have higher yields on a relative basis and short durations outperform their longer duration counterparts given the rather astronomical move in rates. And I think you gave a nice preview of it already, but how do you see this dynamic potentially changing going forward? Because like you said, rates have come down year to date. And the market right now is pricing about three and a half cuts by the end of 2023. You know, interesting kind of stepping back from what we've been through in terms of the significant increase in rates in 2022. And then we start to see rates declining here in 23. When we look at what's happened in the marketplace, we've been in a period of an inverted yield curve where the front end of the bond market or short maturity bonds are yielding more than longer maturity bonds. And that inverted yield curve has created a lot of interest in the short duration space or in short or lower maturity securities. And you think about a market where the three month bill has a yield between four and three quarters and 5% and the yield on the 10 year treasury is 3.45. And those types of yields draw a lot of money into the front end of the market. And I think we'll continue to see that happen. Some of this is fueled by the Fed raising rates from in essence zero up towards five and a quarter percent. And then some of it again is the long end of the curve or longer maturity securities kind of front running what is expected in terms of slower growth and potentially a recession. So I think if we were to step back as you as you suggested and look at the market, you know, one of the key things that we thought investors had to get right this year was really managing that yield curve risk and understanding when to be long duration and when to be short duration, when to be on the front end of the curve and when to have exposure to the long end of the curve. And I believe that we're going to go through a very dynamic period of change 
where we could see front rates continue to decline and we could see the long end really anchored at these lower yields that we have as inflation declines and the Fed starts to pause or stop raising rates. And so let's kind of use some of that Fed funds discussion that we just had to pivot into weaknesses here. So I'd say at a very high level, Gibson, that Fed funds has gone from virtually 0% to just north of 5 in the course of a year. That really has been a weakness, especially for the longer duration securities. Is there anything that you want to add there? Well, yeah, the tightening of monetary policy is definitely front and center right now. And it's probably um, one of the areas that has triggered some weakness. And some of that weakness obviously is flowing through into you know, regional bank problems. And I think it's an area that the market has to focus on. It's um, We can't ignore what's happening in the banking space because the banking system is obviously the creator of credit and credit fuels marginal economic growth. And so this period where the Fed has raised rates up to five and a quarter, the highest since 2007, and is also shrinking its balance sheet, something that many people aren't talking about right now. The Fed had a $9 trillion balance sheet that it you know, developed during the COVID period of time. It's starting to reduce that uh, exposure or at least reduce that size. It's a period of time where their increase in rates is creating some stress in the system. And I think it's one of the weaknesses that we need to talk about, we need to pay attention to, and really need to focus on when is enough enough? When do we see inflation come down? And then ultimately, what are the ramifications for it? So I think this is an area we need to expand on in terms of the regional bank situation. We look at what the Fed has done from their balance sheets and reducing that balance sheet. And we're getting to a point where we've actually seen M2 go into negative territory, right? Like there's actually liquidity simply just being drawn from the system that we haven't seen over the course of M2 being tracked from the Fed standpoint. Last year was all about interest rates are causing what the returns and bonds are doing. It's not really credit spreads. There was some spread widening, but it wasn't drastic. Now we're getting to a point where it's, okay, does spread widening potentially happen given what's happening in the banking sector? And is there a potential credit crunch ahead? The preferreds, in my opinion, show some of that as far as granted it's a lot of regional banks and banks in that you know mm-hmm. index but the preferreds have just gotten demolished year to date for the most part and it's just a reflection of what's happening in the banking sector from my standpoint let's talk about the the, the regional bank and you know financial institution situation that's playing out with the fed raising rates and you mentioned preferreds and i want to get into that in a second but what what's happened here in in, in layman's terms is that as the fed has taken short-term rates higher that's raised the cost of borrowing and the cost of funding in the entire economy. And this is all part of a natural monetary policy cycle where the Fed raises rates that curtails some of the M2 growth that you talked about. It also creates an environment where credit becomes more expensive. And as that happens, we have to go through a process of repricing the cost of capital in the system. The banks are seeing this right now. And what's happened is the loans that they've made over the last three to five years at very low coupons or very low interest rates using their cost of funding or the cheap cost of funding through deposits, those loans are now underwater or they are at losses because the higher rates that we've seen. So the loans made over the last prior to three to five years at lower rates, it's more expensive for the banks to finance themselves and that's creating some of the issues. So as we went through this period of time where we had our three bank failures. um, And you think about Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, First Republic Bank, kind of all fell victims to these higher rates and then concerns about the portfolio, concerns about liquidity, and then ultimately the deposits looking for higher yields that were available in the bill market or money market funds or short duration strategies. So you have this double whammy where you've got some unrealized losses and you have 
deposits that are fleeing from your institution because they can find higher yields. So that's created the situation. And the reason this is important is that when we think about losses at a bank and we think about profitability at a bank, the more concerns there are around losses and lower profitability, the bigger the risk is within that financial institution. Thus, the reason we've seen so much volatility in the preferreds associated with these banks. Now, we're also seeing it in the stocks. I mean, we think about last week when you had the KRE, the regional bank ETF, is down you know, roughly 53% year to date and had a nice little move on, on Friday. But you know, this is flowing through the system and it's causing everyone to step back and really question what's playing out in the financial system and what it means for the regional banks and lending and credit creation. So I think the preferred market's going to create some really interesting opportunities here over the next six to 12 months. Right now, there's just a lot of volatility in that market. Yeah. And I think getting at that, you know, historically speaking or education wise, learning in school is when Fed starts hiking rates, it takes six to nine months for that hike to actually hit this economy and go through this financial systems. Do you feel like that is like the time of that six to nine months has been shrunken by the way money moves today? Or do you still feel that the six to nine months is a appropriate time frame? It feels like the appropriate time frame for the economy, but as it relates to liquidity in the system, I mean, capital moves much faster today than it ever has. And it's akin to information. If you think about 10 years ago, the way we consumed information versus what's available to us today, it's the same thing with capital. Capital flows much faster through the system. It moves much faster. In a lot of conversations in this regional banking discussion around kind of iPhones being a, a source of moving capital very quickly and very easily. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's what it's really done, though, when I, when I look at the markets, and again, I've been doing this for over 30 years, the cycles that we work through are becoming more and more compressed. And so things are happening faster and they're being repriced quicker. And so these shorter cycles create more volatility and that volatility can lead to even greater uncertainty. So it's, it's all part of a system that's becoming more and more efficient as time passes. And, you know, we've seen a couple firms fall victim of that. And I think we'll have to see if there are others. And, you know, the one thing that I find fascinating in this market is this divergence in returns between the regional banks and the super regional banks and then the GSIBs or the very large financial institutions. It's, you know, thankfully the market views those large institutions as very stable right now. It almost makes uh, risk management all the more important going forward, given the compression and cycles and how portfolios get managed and so forth like risk management becomes all the more important because things can happen at a, almost a snap of a fingers now is what it seems especially what we saw with svb and some of those other regional banks well and that goes for not just asset managers but look at banks as well gibson alluded to it quite nicely that part of the problem there was their portfolio management in the sense of how they were managing their duration. Part of what these institutions were doing was going out and buying longer dated treasuries to be able to achieve some sort of yield because rates were so historically low so that they could attract deposits pay higher rates, offer lower rates on loans, things like that. So it really just spans not into the investment management industry, but really across the broader economy as a whole. So Blaine, do you want to get us pivoting into opportunities here? What do you got? Yeah, we spent a lot of time on the banks and the weakness there, but that's just one subset really. When you look at fixed income, it's one one industry. There's a lot of other sub-asset classes, a lot of other opportunities out there. And Gibson, I mean, spoke in the past. It's 
there's in essence fixed income in general is like looking attractive as on the whole so i'm gonna just hand it off to you and let you kind of run with that idea yeah i think the opportunity is really phenomenal today when we think about the repricing we went through in 22 and the higher yields that were available to us towards the end of 22 and into this year we've kind of paraphrased it as bonds are back and we're in an environment where one can actually earn yield or coupons at you know higher rates or rates that make sense and the total returns that are available to investors are phenomenal. If you think about the prospects of yield coming down as we move into a more difficult economic environment, you could have an environment where you're earning that higher yield and then you're producing positive gains on your bond as the yields decline. So um, if I think about that side of it, the total return side of the fixed income market, it's much more exciting today than it was uh, last year. There's also another element of the fixed income market when we kind of think about this bonds are back theme that is that is also interesting in that historically the bond market has served as a good ballast against equity market volatility and kind of concerns around the economy. And I think, again, if, if we think about the allocation to bonds serving as you know, stability in a portfolio as we go into more difficult economic environment or even a potential recession, we'll earn those coupons and then we could have the upside of the decline in yield. So there's a lot of opportunity in the bond market today. Yeah. And last year, I mean, bonds got a bad rap, right? Like it's one of the worst years for longer, longer duration bonds, bonds in general on record, right? You had charts from Bank of America that were saying, you know, going back 150 years, it's one of the worst years that you ever see. You know, the 60-40 right, portfolio's right. dead, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and now it's some people might have wanted to get out of fixed income. They thought fixed income was absolutely safe. You couldn't lose money in fixed income. Reality sets in, rising rate environment, obviously a problem. But now we've gotten through some of the most painful of those let's just say rate hikes and interest rates moving higher, now fixed income is essentially offering that that opportunity to give you a, a decent risk adjusted return, in my opinion, going forward. So Gibson, the fact that we're all on the same page there is a fun thing to have. I think another thing just to consider as it relates to the opportunity is that, as we were talking about earlier, um, really focused on the the yield or available in the in the rates market, but there are going to be opportunities in mortgages and there's going to be opportunities in corporate bonds and high yield and and other areas of the market. And as we work through this, you know, part of the cycle where we go through the, the you know, the the pain of repricing of short term interest rates and having to flush out some of the misallocated capital in the system, ultimately it creates much better outcomes for investors. and. I think that that opportunity set exists and, and I think it's worth uh, reviewing. Everyone hated the bond market last year. <laughs> it was universally hated, probably the most it's been hated in my 30 year career. Not that anyone has just absolutely loved the bond market. You know, people like equities better, but the bond market does serve an important part of a diversified portfolio and can be a real source or can ballast of stability in an environment where you have these higher yields. Just from a sentiment standpoint, when something is so widely hated by everyone and it's been kicked to the curb and it really is truly washed out, that tends to be a good time, again, just general investor psychology at play here. It tends to be a good time to take a look at things and say, okay, is there value here? Are there going to be opportunities now going forward? Are the risk-adjusted return prospects going to be attractive going forward here? Since we've hit on the opportunities and so forth, it's 
we're getting into let's talk about the threats and what might might not be as rosy or what could still be a potential problem, not just for fixed income, but the economy in general. The Fed has talked about sticky inflation or that they're going to be data dependent and the market's pricing in something completely different, right? Uh, and Gibson, I'm actually going to quote something that your, your team wrote recently, and it's the significant negative spreads on the two and five year U.S. Treasury to current Fed funds indicate that the market is significantly ahead of the Fed in terms of easing. Essentially, the way I interpret that is the market's pricing in rate cuts. They're essentially pricing in three going into the end of this year and then actually a fourth in January. And the Fed has more or less said, we're going to keep rates higher for longer. We don't anticipate making a cut throughout the course of this year. The market's just not buying that, that language. It goes back to what people at Annex here have talked about. Is the market playing chicken with the Fed? And at, at what point does someone have to move out of the way? I love that analogy. And you know, I think that you know, we've got to think about the, you know, the prospects of when the Fed does too much or when the Fed moves, you know, rates too high or is too aggressive. And we've seen in the past that when the Fed is too aggressive or not aware of what's happening in the financial markets, that it can create more volatility. I think Powell has been put in a position, you know, post the very aggressive monetary and fiscal policy positions during COVID and the increased inflation that we've seen, he's been in a position where he's had to be diligent and disciplined about fighting inflation. And I think he will continue. You know, when we look at that threat, I think that probably is one of the bigger threats that faces the bond market and actually faces overall markets that if we don't get a recession or a, like a decline in the inflation data um, over the next six to 12 months, and the market has to go through a process of rebasing its expectations around inflation, uh, that could come with uh, more volatility and, and maybe some lower prices across uh, risk markets. So I think this threat of inflation is real. Uh, just to frame it, the Fed has set its target at 2% on core inflation and core PCE. That's aggressive target considering the headline CPI is running about 5 headline PPI is running about 3.3%. And core PCE, which is one of their favorite metrics, is running around 4.9. So there's a lot of work to be done on this. The good thing is, from our perch, the companies we're talking to, what we see happening in the economy, the regional surveys, you know, they're all showing that inflation is starting to normalize. And our view, uh, looking out on the horizon, is that we're not going to be able to achieve that 2% target, but we'll probably get close to three, three and a half. And in an environment where you can earn, you know, three, four, five percent type yields against that three and a half inflation rate, that's pretty darn attractive from a real rate standpoint. There's been a study done, and I don't know if you've read this one by Rob Arnett, uh, research affiliates. They've done some research where, like, if inflation year over year CPI is what we're looking at, it peaks or gets over nine percent or eight percent. It takes a number of years for inflation to get back towards that. 2% target and even back towards that 3% target. Obviously, the data that they used was going from 1970 to now, but we haven't had M2 go into negative territory, which might throw a wrench in that whole calculation or their observations that they had. They had said that it takes typically anywhere from 6 to 20 years to potentially get inflation back down to the target level. Curious if from what you're seeing, if there's anything that would make you think that that might be a possibility. Yeah, similar to our conversation earlier about kind of the speed of capital and the shorter cycles uh, that we're working in in this environment, I think 
you know, if we looked at the historical analog of how long it takes for inflation expectations to change and for inflation to come down, it may be that it's going to be much shorter this time because, again, we have greater access and more fluid information and we're able to reprice things faster today than we would have been able to do 30, 40 years ago. I, mean, I think about working in a grocery store and you had to go through and change the price tags on the groceries in the store if you went through an increase, whereas today everything's done digitally. So I think in this environment, that argument that this is going to take a very long time probably falls on its face a little bit because of that speed of information and transfer into the economy. So I'm of the view that we are going to see inflation continue to come down. I just think it's going to stabilize at a higher rate than the Fed would desire. As we wrap up the Annex Wealth Management SWAT podcast, episode 50, we roll around the horn and check out our headlines. Gibson, what is our headline strength? Interest rates and returns available in the bond market. Headline weakness? Tightening monetary policy, regional bank problems, and tighter credit conditions ahead. Headline opportunity? Fixed income in general. Bonds are back. And our headline threat? Future inflation has to be the focus as a future threat. Trevor Nargis, senior trader, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Blaine Disrude, research analyst. Thank you. Thanks, Danny. Gibson Smith, founder and chief investment officer, Smith Capital Investors. Thank you for joining us for Annex Wealth Management SWAT podcast, episode 50. Thank you. Annex Wealth Management, LLC, is a registered investment advisor. For more information about our firm, please visit AnnexWealth.com. The information in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is subject to change without notice. The opinions expressed are those of the participants and don't necessarily reflect on those of Annex Wealth Management, LLC. Information presented should not be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice, or a recommendation or a solicitation for the sale of any product or strategy. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from qualified professionals to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Investments involve risk. Neither Annex Wealth Management LLC nor its podcast participants shall be liable for losses resulting from decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on this podcast.